and I will ask Nishant to begin his presentation. I will give everybody a warning five minutes before they are due to, uh, to wrap up. And uh, we will have some discussion after each paper. If time remains at the end, we may have uh, some general reflections or uh, considerations upon the panel as a whole. Okay, Nishant, you have the floor. Right. Thank you so much. Um, right. So let me begin by thanking the organizers for letting me present at this uh, conference, which has so many exciting and stimulating papers. Um, I could not have hoped for a better chair than Professor Guha, who has blazed paths for so many of us to follow across various timescapes in the Bombay Decade. So my paper today forms a part of my PhD research. Um, it is very much work in progress, and I would uh, welcome your comments and criticism on it uh, as we go along. So as a lawyer by training, I have, in the words of E.B. Thompson, parachuted into the 19th century and the world of the English East India Company. And I hope to use this opportunity to discuss my work. My research is situated in imperial and social legal history with a focus on the institutional culture of the company, uh, both at home and in India. In particular, I'm concerned with how legal and bureaucratic structures mediated between engagements uh, between bills in Khanish and the company. The title of this paper, Government of Order, is a phrase that uh, an 1824 report by Commissioner William Chaplin uh, uses to describe the company government in Khandesh. He says that the company's government of order has kept wheels in check. Um, I argue that this is not merely a rhetorical notion, but although it is often hazy, it is in ways very oddly specific. Uh, I attempt to sketch some features of what this government of order means uh, by studying the capital punishment practices in the commissioner's territories in the Bombay Deccan and Khandesh, which I will refer to as the commissioner's territories. Circulation and control feature in my paper, not only as how they were deployed by British officials to govern subjects that they ruled over in India, but also how these officials themselves were subject to imperial circulation and control through the operation of law. Seeing the iteration of order as a part of a legal system rather than merely the manifestation of statecraft is something that situates the commissioner's territories not only as a local unit, but actually a form of government in the broader imperial world that the company inhabited. Uh, there are some references to violence and certain terms that I use in today's presentation might be problematic. Uh, I do sort of intend to, however, use them because they are used in the archival sources. And part of the project is really to look at how communities which have so far been uh, ignored as legal actors exercised agency in the past. So this is the East India Company headquarters at Leadenhall Street. Uh, this is significant because uh, today this is the site of the Lloyds Bank headquarters. Uh, Lloyds Bank recently announced that they uh, do admit and apologize for their role in slavery across uh, the Atlantic. And they are sort of currently looking at archival material to explore these linkages further. Uh, this becomes significant in the context of company India because um, India is often looked at as Britain's second empire. Uh, the term the English East India Company can be a bit of a misnomer. A lot of the officials I refer to in my uh, work are Scottish. 
Um, from the legal perspective, 1813 is a crucial year because that is when the company loses its monopoly to trade with India. And since 1793, the British Parliament has been increasingly interfering and uh, scrutinizing the role that the company plays in India. <clears throat> so my legal history has frequently been involved in looking at top level administrative structures and how they work. My attempt is to build on recent imperial history scholarship, which looks at the functioning of officials closer to the ground and how their writings and their actions actually constituted a framework for law. Uh, doing so uh, helps to develop sort of theories about subnational undercurrents and local dynamics. And I intend to do this for the commissioner's territories. Right. So uh, very briefly, just a sort of overview of the company's hierarchy. The Board of Control is something that the British Parliament sets up to oversee the activities of the company. The Commissioner is an office established under the Governor General initially and then later under the Bombay uh, government uh, from 19, uh, 1819 onwards. The collector and political agent is sort of the key focus for, for my presentation. Uh, many of you will be familiar with uh, Mount Stuart Elphinstone. He was the first commissioner uh, and <clears throat> subsequently becomes the governor of Bombay and is uh, thereafter sort of instrumental in authoring a report which uh, bridges Maratha practices and East India Company uh, practices in the year 1819. Um, John Briggs. Again, perhaps some of you are familiar with this person. He is the first collector and political agent in Khandesh. Uh, later in his life, he is sort of quite significant for his translations of works from Persian and from Modi. Um, so some of you did refer to Farishta's work in uh, previous panels and also a memoir of Nana Fadnavis. Um, Briggs occupies many, many different offices and roles in Khandesh and then thereafter later in India. Um, Briggs is a character of continuing interest. I hope to work on a legal biography of John Briggs in the coming year. And I'd welcome any sort of uh, comments from Persianet and Modi scholars about this. Uh, Khandesh, just to sort of give you a sense of where it's located broadly, uh, would be approximately this region. In company records, it's referred to very often as a region which has disorder and confusion uh, preceding uh, the decade of the Anglo-Maratha Wars. Um, Pre-company scholarship demonstrates that this actually would not have been the case necessarily, but this is how company records do describe it very often. It's important strategically and uh, sort of uh, economically because it forms a link between Hindustan and the Deccan. Uh, there is also the Bombay-Agra road, which passes through Khandesh in later years in the 19th century. <clears throat> Um, it has challenging terrain, climate polities, uh, so a lot of hilly regions, lots of forested areas, and polities who are not always friendly towards the company. So while this might all seem like a little bit of a political hodgepodge, uh, as this sort of map of Khandesh later in the 19th century demonstrates, uh, it is ringed by various sovereigns, the Hurkas, the Gayakwads, um, the Sindhyas, and the Nizam. There are also smaller units, so the, uh, the states of Rajpipla and numerous Bhil chiefs who occupy different regions in Khandesh. 
Um, there is, however, parallelly a legal structure which is already well established within the presidency town. So this 1805 uh, image is of Indian law officers in the Bombay presidency in the court of the recorder at, at Bombay. Um, this does not necessarily apply to the commissioner's territories, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the top level represents Hindu law officers, whereas the, the lower level represents Muslim law officers. Um, there is also a, a fairly well-established British legal system for Bombay presidency, which has jurisdiction over Europeans who live there. And... Uh, within sort of the rest of the state. Uh, this has um, British qualified lawyers who act as judges uh, in the limits of the Bombay presidency. Again, this is distinct from the commissioner's territory. Uh, within the commissioner's territory, there is um, this sort of political uh, and judicial hierarchy uh, as far as policing and, and legal functions are concerned. So the collector really is the linchpin of company government in the commissioner's territory. The boxes in blue are, are British officials. The ones in green are, are Indian officials or others who engage with the company in various capacities. The collector very often also has military authority. Many of them are actually military officers um, and they do conduct court martials, etc. Again, jurisdictions which are not always very clear. We will sort of come to that in, in just a moment. From the year 1825, there are criminal judges. Two judges are appointed for the commissioner's territories who travel on circuit. Um, again, these are not legally trained individuals, but these are company civil servants who um, are supposed to relieve the collector of a lot of judicial burden. Uh, I also want to sort of emphasize that the collector is very heavily dependent on his Indian kacheri staff. So the Huzur kacheri, again, staffed largely by Brahmins um, and other district level officials and village level officials, without which really this system of company government could not have functioned. And there are limits as far as how much of the, the collectorate headquarters actually influences things that happen elsewhere in the province of Khandesh. So really the heart of this as a legal historian um, is on the issue of jurisdiction. Uh, these are very hazy and often overlapping. Uh, unlike other places across the imperial world and even somewhere in the presidency towns, a lot of these are not formally assigned through instruments or commissions. These are arrogated powers which flow from office and these are very often ad hoc. Um, there are no instruments of appointment or no sort of commission which are issued. Ironically, the commissioner himself does not have a commission, but it is only a letter that Elphinstone's uh, cousin writes to him as private secretary to the governor general of India. And this becomes a problem later on when um, Elphinstone becomes governor and sends decisions come to him for review. So there is an opinion which is sought from the Advocate General of Bombay, who then is a British Oxford qualified lawyer, uh, who then sort of validates the system and then recommends a few safeguards. It's also found that none of the collectors have actually been sworn into office. 
So retrospectively, they do get sworn in as justices of the peace and as magistrates. But as you can see, there is a lot of uh, ad hocism and arrogation, which is which is taking place in terms of how legal jurisdiction works. Now, there are multiple areas in which jurisdiction is exercised. And as we saw before, so um, most of these collectors in the commissioner's territories are uh, military officers. So they have the power to convene court martials. Uh, they don't always do that. So a number of executions do take place in Khandesh where really there is no discernible legal fora which is convened. And Briggs is involved in at least three and a fourth one, which he aborts because he has been sort of chastised by, by authorities above him. Um, rebellion is a very sort of amorphous category, which is used to, to hold all of these things in. And a number of civilians are then tried by military officials under the guise of being rebels. There is a notion of martial law, which is talked about, not necessarily always invoked. Uh, I'd like to refer you here to Bhavani Raman's work on martial law and the sort of hazy spaces that it occupies and how it's different from this very clear distinction between military and civilian law in the U UK at, at the time. Um, criminal jurisdiction is something really that uh, forms a very large part of my research, at least in, in this aspect. So a lot of this deals with organized crime, uh, so deal gangs or highway robberies, etc. are dealt with. There are a number of murder cases, uh, political negotiation, perhaps through raids and uh, robberies, which may have taken place earlier, is now treated as crime. And again, Ajay Skaria's work, of course, looks at deal um, criminal sort of activity as attempts at renegotiating, which is understood differently by the company government. Um, F.B. Robinson's work is actually very, very interesting because he actually delves into a lot of the trial uh, records around Ahmed Nagar and Pune, uh, which do deal with this. Uh, civil jurisdiction, I mean, again, not relevant necessarily for the death penalty, but only affects a very limited number of, of peoples, um, mostly literate landed disputes. Uh, Khandesh, in fact, is notoriously lacking in this uh, chaplain pulls up breaks for this saying that uh, the lack of civil litigation is possibly a sign of corruption uh, and he sort of requires to address that concern. There is a uh, talk of political jurisdiction also which has blurry boundaries with the judicial. So a number of Bhil chiefs or naiks are sent away from Khandesh and it is later realized that they've never been tried. So some are sent to Penang, uh, present day Malaysia Others are shipped to Butcher's Island and about 72 people die within a month of them reaching that. And it's later realized that they've never even been tried. Uh, five minutes left. Sure. sure. Uh, so groups which have been noticed by the judicial consultation. So Hindus includes many, many other sort of uh, communities as well. Bheels are classified under that. This sort of binary between Hindus and Muslims is interesting and important because um, there are sort of uh, law officers who determine how this is, um, uh, what sort of religious practices are to be followed in sentencing. Uh, women particularly are noted in the consultation because the question of whether women can be sentenced to death is something that keeps doing the rounds. 
uh, the commissioner is keen that this be implemented, but he faces opposition from the Bombay government. Uh, again, a different system for British civilians and soldiers. So contrary to sort of uh, inquiries about corruption, those around the death penalty will <laughs> face very little scrutiny and, and very little process. So there's some themes uh, to underscore from, from what I'd looked at before, is how these powers are vested and how these powers are supervised. So are they legible to um, authorities higher up in the company hierarchy? Uh, there are many instances of coercion and this follows socioeconomic and caste lines. So perhaps not very different from the criminal justice system as it seems to exist today. Um, there are numerous anxieties about religious law and norms of punishment. Again, while there are works of codification, while there are works of um, digesting some of these laws into usable manuals, these very rarely get used and there is a heavy reliance on religious law officials. Um, just to sort of very quickly talk about the case of Chir Naik. Um, he was someone who Briggs executed. He had hucks or claims near Dule. Uh, he claims um, that he was not fully sort of compensated, that he was promised pensions, but only got a part of them and raided company villages in protest. When he's called to account for this, he authors what the archive described as an insolent letter and he justifies his raid. So this is the content of, of his letter. So, he makes this claim to a right and says that um, you ask us not to plunder, but then you don't really provide for us, uh, do as you please, but to give us nothing to eat and leave us to feed on nothing but leave and, leaves and grass is an admirable plan. Um, so there are disputes about whether or not he actually surrenders. Uh, he admits to this letter and raids. Uh, he's hanged on the direction of John Briggs and Briggs is then in Pune, and he notes that I received verbal instructions from Elphinston to do this, and uh, he sort of um, is, is executed summarily. Um, other Bhil Naiks adopt different strategies. So Kanaya Naik and Dasat Naik escape from Khandesh to Malwa, get a cowl from John Malcolm, and then return to Khandesh and then negotiate with Briggs. Gumani Naik, before uh, Chil Naik's execution, has actually uh, obtained an agreement and then sort of renegotiates it later. Uh, Briggs's successor, Archibald Robertson, actually does try him and then transports him to uh, Penang. Uh, the consequences for John Briggs, as I guess you can well imagine, are not very sort of severe. So the directors do uh, almost over a ha half decade later, uh, talk about his treatment of uh, Chilnaik in scaling terms but nothing really, really happens. Uh, Briggs has already moved away from Khandesh by the time this dispatch reaches. Uh, an inquiry finds no fault in Briggs's actions and Elphinstone essentially uh, endorses the system that he creates as commissioner. So, I mean, this is just an image which sort of uh, is the symbolic sort of representation of the nib breaking at the end of a capital sentence. Um, so while this, uh, I, I will conclude here, uh, so while this sort of um, flattens the relations between uh, Bhil Naik's and the company, it actually does 
tell us a story of a much more complicated and intricate pattern of negotiation and dealings. Um, so that is- uh, uh, You run out of time. Oh, yes, okay, absolutely. To conclude, uh, my research paper talk about different facets in the and um, to sort of absolutely conclude in 10 seconds. So I contend that uh, legal authority was unconstrained by textual or precedential authority. So in the attempt to uh, continue Maratha institutions and not follow British law, uh, collectors were not really bound by any textual or legal precedents and essentially in, indulge in ad hoc uh, proceedings which uh, created this so-called government of order. Thank you. Okay. 